and welcome to the Hypochondriac's Almanac podcast. I am your host, Sarah. And before we get started, we need to talk about a few little disclaimers. We are not doctors, nurses, or medical professionals of any kind here on this podcast, folks. So if you have any questions, concerns, any of that about your medical condition, do not take what we say on the show as a medical diagnosis. See a doctor. Okay, let's jump right into today's episode. In the U.S., the FDA has given the first ever approval for fecal transplant therapy. And this sounds pretty interesting. This article does not have an author listed, but the U.S. health regulator on Wednesday approved Switzerland-based Faring Pharmaceuticals fecal transplant-based therapy to reduce the reoccurrence of a bacterial infection, making it the first therapy of its kind to be cleared in the U.S., The therapy, Raviota, targets the particular type of superbug responsible for infections that can cause serious and life-threatening diarrhea. In the U.S., the infection is associated with about 15 to 30,000 deaths annually. Well, this is the first of such therapy approved by the Food and Drug Administration for reoccurrent infections of this kind. It has been classified by the regulator as investigational and has long been a standard of care in the U.S. for this condition. As the first FDA-approved fecal microbiota product, the action represents an important milestone as it provides an additional approved option to prevent reoccurrent CBI, said Peter Marks, director of the agency's Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research. Rebyota is delivered through an enema and works by replenishing good gut bacteria through samples of microbiomes distilled from the feces of healthy donors. Approval for the therapy comes on the back of a positive vote from the regulator's advisors in September of this year, as most on the panel sought standardization of the therapy. Faring, which gained the therapy through its 2018 purchase of U.S.-based Rebiotics, Inc., was not immediately available for comment on pricing and availability of the therapy. Besides Faring, other companies, including Ceres Therapeutics, which is developing an oral treatment, are working on similar therapies based on fecal microbiota transplantation. Wow, that's some interesting stuff, and we'll keep you guys posted on that one. Next article... Fatherhood changes men's brains according to before and after MRI scans. And there are multiple authors listed on this one. We will list this in the show notes if you want to check out this for yourself. But the time fathers devote to childcare every week has tripled over the past 50 years in the U.S. The increase in fathers' involvement in childbearing is even steeper in countries that have expanded paid paternity leave or created incentives for fathers to take leave in places like Germany, Spain, Sweden, and Iceland. And a growing body of research finds that children with engaged fathers do better on a range of outcomes, including physical health and cognitive performance. Despite dads raising participation in childcare and their importance in the lives of their kids, there is surprisingly little research about how fatherhood affects men. Even fewer studies focus on the brain and biological changes that might support fathering. It is no surprise that the transition to parenthood can be transformative for anyone with a new baby. For women who become biological mothers, pregnancy-related hormone changes help to explain why a new mother's brain might change. But does fatherhood reshape the brains and bodies of men who don't experience pregnancy directly in ways that motivate their parenting? We set out to investigate this question in our recent study of first-time fathers in two countries. 
So first and foremost, the pregnancy's effect on a new mom's brain, research has found compelling evidence that pregnancy can enhance neuroplasticity or remodeling in the structures of a woman's brain. Using magnetic resonance imaging, researchers have identified large-scale changes in the anatomy of women's brains from before and after pregnancy. In one study, researchers in Spain scanned first-time mothers before conceiving and again at two months after they gave birth. Compared with childless women, the new mother's brain volume was smaller, suggesting that key brain structures actually shrink in size across pregnancy and the early postpartum period. The brain changes were so pronounced that an algorithm could easily differentiate the brain of a woman who had gone through a pregnancy from that of a woman with no children. All across the brain, these changes are visible in gray matter, the layer of tissue in the brain that is rich with neurons. Pregnancy appears to affect structures in the cortex, the most recently evolved outer surface of the brain, including regions linked with thinking about others' minds, a process that researchers call the theory of mind. Mothers also show brain changes in the subcortex, the more ancient structures nestled deeper within the brain that are linked with more primitive functions, including emotion and motivation. Why do these structural brain changes happen after pregnancy? Researchers believe these changes may facilitate a mother's sensitive caregiving of newborns who demand constant attention and cannot verbalize their needs. Indeed, when mothers see photos or videos of their infants, it activates many of the same brain regions that change the most across pregnancy. It seems plausible that new mothers' brains change in a way that helps them to respond to and care for their newborns. But what about the dads? They do not experience pregnancy directly, but may take care of the new baby too. And it is true, dads' brains change too. As with practicing any new skill, the experience of caring for an infant might leave a mark on the brains of new parents. This is what neuroscientists call experience-induced brain plasticity, like the brain changes that occur when you learn a new language or master a new musical instrument. A sparse but growing body of research is observing this type of plasticity in fathers who experience the cognitive, physical, and emotional demands of caring for a newborn without going through pregnancy. In terms of brain function, for instance, gay male fathers who are primary caregivers show stronger connections between parenting brain regions when viewing their infants compared with secondary male caregivers. To learn more about plasticity in new dad's brains are research groups at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles and the Instituto de Investigación Sanitaria Gregorio Maranon in Madrid associated with the Bee Mother Project collaborated on a new study. We recruited 40 men, 20 in Spain, and 20 in California, and put each into an MRI scanner twice, first during their partner's pregnancy and again after their baby was six months old. We also included a control group of 17 childless men. And we found several significant changes in the brains of fathers from prenatal to postpartum that did not emerge within the childless men we followed across the same period. In both the Spanish and Californian samples, fathers' brain changes appeared in regions of the cortex that contribute to visual processing, attention, and empathy toward the baby. But what remolds a new father's brain? The degree of brain plasticity in fathers may be linked with how much they interact with their baby. Although fathers in many parts of the world are increasingly taking part in childcare, parental involvement varies wildly across different men. This range of involvement may explain why we found more subtle brain changes in the fathers compared with those observed in first-time mothers. In fact, 
brain changes in fathers were almost half the magnitude of the changes observed in mothers. Social, cultural, and psychological factors that determine how much fathers engaged with their children may in turn influence changes to the fathering brain. Indeed, Spanish fathers who on average have more generous paternity leaves than fathers in the U.S. displayed more pronounced changes in brain regions than support goal-directed attention, which may help fathers attune to their infants' cues compared with Californian fathers. This finding raises the question of whether family policies that boost how much time dads spend on infant care during the early postpartum period may help support the development of a fathering brain. On the flip side, Perhaps men who show more remodeling of the brain and hormones are also more motivated to participate in hands-on care. Much more research is needed to tease out these questions and to figure out how best to intervene with fathers who may be at risk of having trouble adjusting to the parenting role. Despite the importance of fathers to child development, funding agencies have not tended to prioritize research on men becoming dads, but this may start to change as more findings like these emerge. Future studies with more detailed measures of postpartum caregiving can reveal more about parental brain plasticity in both men and women. And that is some very interesting stuff indeed. Okay, next article. If you have a runny nose or a sore throat, you definitely don't have the 24-hour flu. And this article was written by Andy Bretovich. And this is some interesting stuff because we are now hitting into flu and cold season. But with the winter months and holiday season on the horizon, you're likely doing everything in your power to stay healthy. But sometimes getting sick is inevitable and knowing exactly what you've come down with becomes a priority to get proper treatment and avoid passing it along to others. The flu and COVID-19 are likely high on your radar, but you should be aware of the 24-hour flu. Believe it or not, even though it's called the 24-hour flu, it has nothing to do with the flu or flu virus at all. The 24-hour flu is a misnomer because influenza is an upper respiratory tract virus that does not involve the gastrointestinal tract, explained doctors. People who have the 24-hour flu are actually experiencing a condition known as gastroenteritis, also often referred to as the stomach flu. Gastroenteritis is commonly known as the 24-hour flu because the symptoms it causes may only last a day or two. That's not always true, though, since GI issues caused by this condition can sometimes take up to 14 days to go away, say the experts. When it comes to the 24-hour flu, you don't want to mess around. Here is everything you need to know about the stomach bug, according to doctors. What causes the 24-hour flu? Adult cases are usually caused by a norovirus, also known as the winter vomiting bug, rotavirus, or food poisoning. The virus or contaminated food causes your stomach and intestines to become irritated and inflamed, leading to gastroenteritis and the associated symptoms. Both the norovirus and rotavirus are spread through coming into contact with someone who has the virus or their unwashed hands, especially after going to the bathroom or changing a diaper or touching contaminated surfaces. Food poisoning, on the other hand, occurs when someone consumes contaminated food or water. That being said, the 24-hour flu is typically not airborne, which would be caused by coughing, sneezing, or laughing. People can get it through ingestion of contaminated foods, but usually more rapid spread is in crowded areas and more through direct contact rather than respiratory. What are the symptoms? 
Symptoms usually appear within 4 to 48 hours after coming into contact with the virus or eating contaminated foods. They can also include abdominal pain, diarrhea, cramps, nausea, vomiting, and sometimes fever. You may also have body aches, loss of appetite, or extreme fatigue and dehydration. This can be common if you're throwing up or going to the bathroom a lot. The tricky part is symptoms can be similar to those of the flu or COVID-19. COVID-19 can cause gastrointestinal symptoms even when breathing problems are not present. So it is very important to look at other more severe health conditions when you experience these symptoms. But a simple test can rule out COVID-19, the flu, or bacterial infections. And while anyone can get the 24-hour flu, those with a weakened immune system are definitely at a higher risk young children, elderly people, and anyone who is immune compromised or taking medications that suppress their immune system are more likely to develop severe symptoms. Does the 24-hour flu really go away in a day? Unfortunately, the answer to this is no. For most people, the illness goes away in a few days and you can be contagious from a few days to two weeks or more, depending on which virus caused the gastroenteritis. However, in the case of the norovirus, you may still be contagious a few days after you recover. The 24-hour flu is very contagious, so the best way to avoid getting others sick is to limit contact, disinfect all surfaces, counters, door handles, faucets, etc., and practice good hand washing. That means rinsing with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. The virus can also remain in your stool for up to two weeks after recovery, so hand washing after using the bathroom is absolutely essential. What can you do to treat the 24-hour flu? Well, most cases do go away on their own with rest and plenty of fluids. Doctors recommend hydrating with electrolytes and drinking a lot of vitamin water, Gatorade, or even Pedialyte. If you're struggling to keep anything down, drink small amounts of water or electrolyte fluids, two to four ounces, every 30 to 60 minutes. You should also stick to bland foods like bread, crackers, or rice and avoid anything heavy or flavorful. Sometimes antidiarrheals like Imodium can be used, but that should be discussed with your doctor before using in case there is an infection that requires more specific treatment like an antibiotic. A probiotic supplement may also be helpful to restore the gut flora, which can be thrown off when you're dealing with an infection or virus. There's not one probiotic that's considered much better than the others, but a probiotic in general supplies you with good bacteria and can help mitigate symptoms. You may not feel the effects of the probiotic right away, but you'll notice and feel the difference over time. And then finally, when should you see a doctor? If you have diarrhea that lasts more than several days or notice blood in your stool, then you need to seek medical care. Prolonged nausea that lasts more than one or two weeks is also a sign that it's time to check in with your doctor. Dehydration is another major concern with the 24-hour flu, so if you feel lightheaded, dizzy, delirious, or have dry mouth, lips, or eyes, you need to go to the emergency room or urgent care ASAP. Wow, keep that in mind, definitely. Next article, 50,000-year-old zombie virus revived from the Siberian permafrost. Anugraha Sudaravelu wrote this article, and this seems pretty interesting. Global warming is bringing back ancient viruses from the dead as frozen zombie viruses are making their way back into the earth as the ice melts in the northern hemisphere. To get to know these viruses better, a team of scientists from the French National Center for Scientific Research have reanimated several of them. 
13 frozen viruses were found in seven different samples from the Siberian permafrost, and one of them was nearly 50,000 years old. This study confirms the capacity of large DNA viruses infecting acanthromoeba to remain infectious after more than 48,500 years spent in deep permafrost, said the preliminary study led by microbiologist Jean-Marie Almanpick. Most of the viruses found in the study were proposed to be part of the family of viruses that have double-strain DNA and infect amoeba. Long, these viruses could remain infectious once exposed to outdoor conditions like UV light, oxygen, and heat, and how likely they will be to encounter and infect a suitable host in the interval is yet impossible to estimate, says the study. However, more in-depth analysis is needed to determine more information about the viruses. While the discovery seems like a win for science, people online are not too thrilled about the prospect of a zombie virus being revived from the dead. With the world's glaciers melting faster than ever before, it is only a matter of time before these viruses make their way back to the world, so studying them beforehand might not be such a bad idea. Wow, that's pretty scary. It's hard to imagine what those sorts of things could do to us now with our different genetic makeup. But next article, this is what actually happens to your body when you're eating too much sugar, according to dietitians. And Marissa Fantazzo wrote this article. If your goal is to eat healthier and you're a beginner to healthy eating, looking at how much sugar you consume daily is essential. Eating too much of this common ingredient can negatively and greatly impact your skin health, your gut health, and your metabolism, leading to weight gain and an imbalanced gut microbiota. This can cause bloating, gas, diarrhea, and constipation. With that said, we reached out to dietitians, nutritionalists, and other health experts for warning signs from your body that can indicate you are eating too much sugar. Number one, one of the key warning signs you might see is that you're seeing more breakouts, pimples, and duller looking skin. One major con of eating too much sugar is that it can accelerate skin aging. This can lead to premature wrinkling, sagging skin, etc. Relying on sugary processed convenience foods as a main source of nutrition can be damaging to your health and can cause you to age more rapidly. These types of foods like sugary pastries, granola bars, cereals, and candy are made with refined carbohydrates along with sugar, which can speed up the aging process. This can also mean more breakouts, drier skin, and an overall duller appearance as opposed to a radiant and supple one. Sugary snacks and treats not only increase aging, but can lead to poor gut health. Both of these side effects are damaging to overall health. Doctors advise trying to limit these foods in your diet and rely on them only when absolutely necessary. While you don't have to deprive yourself of an occasional sugary treat, Integrating more whole foods and antioxidant-rich foods like fruit and vegetables will help decrease oxidative damage internally and externally. Number two, you're experiencing stomach pain, weight gain, and indigestion. If you're frequently suffering from chronic bloating and other signs of indigestion, it's not only important to see a doctor, but it's also important to reevaluate your diet and find out what could be triggering this. Doctors often note that this reaction is due to too many sugary foods or refined carbohydrates as they are devoid of fiber, an essential nutrient to aid in healthy digestion. A diet full of sugary processed junk foods is one of the major causes of dysbiosis and fungal overgrowth, doctors explain. These foods are high in sugars that feed yeast overgrowth 
and rich in pro-inflammatory ingredients that damage your gut and cause inflammation across your body. When you consume too much sugar, potential yeast overgrowth is just one of the negative impacts your body may experience. The longer you eat a diet high in sugar, the more your body becomes resistant to the insulin's effects of lowering your blood sugar. This will inevitably lead to diabetes. Gut health has been linked to immunity, glucose control, heart health, and digestion. And making this a priority can help you reach all of your other health goals like weight loss, more energy, better sleep, and healthy aging. Recent research has even discovered links between gut health and mental health. Overall, doctors point out it's safe to say that an unhealthy gut can cause problems in every part of your body. And by replacing sugary foods with refined carbs, and by replacing sugary foods and refined carbs with whole foods, you will notice a difference. Next article. The Black Death changed our DNA and we're still paying for it. And Cassidy Ward wrote this article. An international team of scientists led by researchers at McMaster University and the University of Chicago argue that infectious disease is one of the strongest selection pressures humanity faces. And that's especially true during particularly vicious disease outbreaks. This new study published in the Journal of Nature focuses on what scientists refer to as the single greatest mortality event in recorded history. And that is the Black Death pandemic, which spread through the world in the 14th century. Considering that the disease wiped out large swaths of the human population, with some regions losing upward of half their populace at once, it makes sense that we might have undergone some adaptive changes as a result of exposure to this bacteria, which caused Black Death. To find out, researchers gathered DNA samples from 206 Europeans from two different population groups. One group was in Denmark, while the other was in London, and both groups had representatives from before, during, and after Black Death swept through the area. Of the 206 total individuals represented in the DNA data, 67 lived before the pandemic, 97 lived after it ended, and the remaining 42 lived during the plague and died from the disease. Scientists compared the DNA samples over time, looking for genes which might have altered as a consequence of natural selection specifically genes which might have been mutated in response to the plague. They initially found hundreds of potential candidates, but were able to narrow the search by looking for genes which frequencies were opposed before and after the pandemic. The thinking here is that any beneficial mutation would necessarily be rare among the people who died of the plague, but we would expect their frequency to increase among the survivors. From the hundreds they initially identified, limiting to genes with that characteristic reduced the total list to 35. From there, scientists compared changes in both population groups. In Denmark and London, to see which changes showed up in both places, something else we would expect if the changes were driven by a commonly experienced disease. That brought the list down to four genes, all of which appear to have been enhanced in response to the plague pandemic. Later tests in the lab suggested that the mutated versions of these four genes helped to protect our medieval ancestors from Y. pestis and a whole bunch of other diseases too. Among the adaptations were changes which make the immune system better at detecting proteins on the surface level of bacteria. That makes it easier to identify and kill. Another adaptation makes immune cells better at talking to one another so that once one cell learns about the invader, it can tell everyone else. Researchers estimate that people with two good copies of this beneficial mutation were 40% more likely to survive an infection than their peers. In the midst of a deadly disease, our immune systems were busy working not just to keep our ancestors alive, 
but to make them better suited for surviving in the future. The only trouble is that they did not consider the cost. Those very same genes, which may have helped our ancestors avoid death while the world crumbled around them, have also been linked to a buffet of modern autoimmune disorders. In the calculus of the moment, it makes a kind of sense. Even if those people, surrounded by their dead and dying loved ones, could have known that evolving would mean inflammatory bowel disease for their descendants, would they have cared? Could they have cared? And would we blame them if they didn't? In the end, it probably doesn't matter. They did what they did. They survived. And now they're paying the price for our ancestors' survival of the Black Death with creaky joints and chronic pain. Interesting stuff indeed. Next article. Symptoms of MS can be subtle, so here are the signs doctors want you to know about. And I did chose this article because we've been hearing a lot about MS in the news today. Some celebrities recently have brought this disease into the forefront of health news. Multiple sclerosis affects approximately 2.5 million people worldwide, and that number includes many celebrities. Christina Applegate was diagnosed with MS in August in 2021 while filming the third and final season of Dead to Me on Netflix. The actress took time off to focus on her health and recently made her first public appearance at the Hollywood Walk of Fame ceremony, where she was awarded her own star. Similarly, Selma Blair shared her journey with MS in her memoir, Mean Baby. In a post on Instagram, she wrote, I am disabled. I fall sometimes. I drop things. My memory is foggy. My left side is asking for directions from a broken GPS, but we are doing it. While this autoimmune condition affects everyone differently, there are signs and symptoms to be aware of. While it's important to know that some of the symptoms of MS don't necessarily mean you have this neurological condition, any concerning symptom is worth talking to your doctor about. Every patient will experience their own set of symptoms and symptom progression. But according to doctors, some early symptoms to watch out for include eye pain, blurry vision, double vision, numbness or weakness in one or more limbs, and difficulties with balance. Again, if you experience any of these symptoms, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have MS, but it does indicate that you should seek medical attention as soon as possible. Now, what are the common symptoms of MS? As MS progresses, doctors say some of the more common symptoms include fatigue, difficulties with memory and focus, numbness and tingling, weakness, loss of balance, dizziness, vision loss, bladder problems, stiffness, pain, and depression. Neurologists at the University of Maryland Center for Multiple Sclerosis Treatment and Research add, there is no single symptom that is common for MS. However, there are a variety of symptoms that can occur more commonly. Common MS symptoms during an attack can include weakness, numbness, sensory changes in the face, arms, or legs, vertigo, unilateral vision change with pain with eye movements, and leg weakness with changes in bowel and bladder function. While relapsing remitting MS, which is a type of MS characterized by periods of flare-ups and periods of remission, can present with a variety of nonspecific symptoms in people of all ages, there are a few helpful guidelines to know about. Relapsing and remitting MS does not tend to present with generalized weakness, generalized pain, or with symptoms that progressively worsen over a period of months to years. Less common symptoms of MS include tremors, hearing loss, difficulties with swallowing, speech problems, seizures, itching, and periods of uncontrollable laughter or crying. It is also important to note that MS is more common in women than men. 
women may notice that their symptom severity varies with hormonal changes, pregnancy, and menopause. Men are more likely to be diagnosed with a more progressive form of MS called primary progressive. MS-like symptoms can also be symptoms of other conditions. MS can implicate any part of the central nervous system, meaning that the optic nerves, brain, and spinal cord are all fair game. The symptoms that MS causes are directly related to parts of the central nervous system that have been infected. In the same way, any disease process or injury that affects the central nervous system can provide neurologic symptoms, just like the symptoms we see in MS. MS has a diverse range of presentations and symptoms, likely a reflection of the area of the central nervous system that is currently affected by the disease. MS can infect any area of the central nervous system, including the brain, spinal cord, and not infrequently the optic nerves, which provide vision. MS symptoms are mimicked by multiple other diseases and conditions due to the great variety of symptoms that MS can present with, again, reflecting the disease's ability to affect multiple areas of the central nervous system. When in doubt, ask your physician for a referral to a neurologist with specialty training in MS. He or she will be able to discuss your symptoms, perform an examination, obtain brain imaging if warranted, and ultimately provide an answer if your symptoms are due to MS. Next article, could your Christmas tree be making you sick? What to know this holiday season? Elizabeth D. Filippo and Julia Ranni wrote this article. Do you experience a stuffy nose or itchy skin when you string lights on your real Christmas tree? Do you find yourself reaching for your inhaler or cough drops more frequently over the holidays? If so, you could be allergic to your Christmas tree. People who notice a flare-up in allergy symptoms at this time of the year could experience what's known as Christmas tree syndrome or Christmas tree dermatitis if you develop a rash. And while tis the season to revel in the holiday spirit for a few unlucky folks, decorating or touching a Christmas tree can pose a real health risk. In 2019, an Australian woman suffered an allergic reaction to her tree that seriously derailed her holiday plans. Nikki Waldgrave developed a painful rash while helping secure her family's Christmas tree to the hood of her car. The Sydney-based journalist told the New York Post that she broke out in blisters on her forearms and hands as soon as she brought the seven-foot fur home. It was one of the worst feelings I've experienced in my life, Waldgrave said at the time. We just put the tree on top of the car and my arms started itching, but I didn't think too much about it. Initially, Waldgrave attributed the discomfort as eczema or allergies which she had her entire life. It wasn't until the family began decorating the tree that the pain worsened and she began developing hives and open blisters. By the time I got to bed, I was covered from head to toe in angry red welts, she recalled. After showering and taking antihistamines, Waldgrave decided to head to the hospital when she began wheezing and bleeding onto her bedding. Doctors gave the 39-year-old stronger antihistamine and steroids, which helped to lessen the swelling on her arms, face, and legs. Waldgrave shared that she had grown up with an artificial tree and the family removed the fur from their home as soon as possible. According to a study published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal, approximately 7% of people experience an allergic reaction when exposed to coniferous trees. 
Like Waldgrove, the majority of sufferers experience symptoms like wheezing, sneezing, and skin rashes within the first 24 hours of exposure. However, others develop a reaction after several days. Researchers believe that although scrapings from pine and spruce trees revealed high traces of mold, no mold had been airborne in the test environment. Tree pollens and balsam oils are believed to be the cause of Christmas tree syndrome symptoms. While the most obvious answer might be simply to use an artificial tree, you might not be in the clear in terms of allergy symptoms. Experts say artificial trees, especially those stored in damp or humid spaces, can also become a breeding ground for mold and dust. If you're opting for a real Christmas tree, ask the retailer to shake the tree for any loose debris, dust, or mold. For both coniferous and artificial trees that aren't pre-lit, consider hosing off the tree outside and allowing it to dry before bringing it inside to decorate. To help minimize your risk of an allergic reaction, wear long clothing or gloves when decorating or handling the tree. And if possible, have a friend or family member help you decorate to minimize your contact with the tree. Air purifiers strategically placed around the room can also help reduce any allergies that may cause irritations. Consider upgrading your tree storage to a container rather than a cardboard box to help prevent dust and mold from collecting throughout the year. Additionally, a 2016 report revealed it's not just Christmas trees that can be harmful. Poinsettia, perfumed candles, Christmas cactus, frankincense, myrrh, and other seasonal pollens could all pose a rare but possibly allergic risk but possible allergy risk. Keeping antihistamines and cortisone creams handy during the holidays can help reduce symptoms of these less than festive allergies. Wow, that is startling, isn't it? Next article, Celine Dion reveals stiff person syndrome diagnosis. What are the symptoms? Julia Ranney wrote this article. On Thursday morning, Celine Dion revealed that she's been diagnosed with stiff person syndrome an incurable and rare neurological disease that can cause severe muscle spasms. In an emotional Instagram video, the Canadian singer said that her condition, which affects approximately one in a million people, has forced her to cancel or postpone a series of upcoming concert dates. I've been dealing with problems with my health for a long time, and it's been really difficult for me to face these challenges and to talk about everything that I've been through. It hurts me to tell you that I won't be ready to restart my tour in Europe in February, Dion wrote in the post caption. In the clip, the 54-year-old said that while the condition impacts her daily life and causes discomfort, she's relieved to finally know what's going on. The spasms affect every aspect of my daily life, sometimes causing difficulties when I walk and not allowing me to use my vocal cords to sing the way I'm used to. I have to admit it's been a struggle, she said. While we're still learning about this rare condition, we now know that it's what has been causing all of the spasms I have been having. The mother of three added that she has a great team of doctors working to relieve her symptoms and that her children have been vital in developing support and hope. So what exactly is this stiff person syndrome or SPS? As per the Stiff Person Syndrome Foundation, the condition affects the central nervous system, specifically the brain and spinal cord. People with SPS can be disabled, wheelchair-bound, or bedridden, unable to work and care for themselves. The syndrome is characterized by muscle spasms, rigidity, severe stiffness, and pain. SPS patients also have a heightened sensitivity to stimuli, like noise, touch, and emotional distress, which can set off the spasms. While SPS is a rare disease, more people are affected than reported due to misdiagnoses. Overall, it can take up to seven years to identify. 
SPS can be mistaken for multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, fibromyalgia, psychosomatic illness, anxiety, phobia, and other autoimmune diseases. What are the signs and symptoms of stiff person syndrome? The typical symptoms of SPS include muscle rigidity, hyperstiffness, and spasms in the muscles of the trunk, including the back and limbs. The tremor severity is variable from episode to episode. Moreover, the neurological disease has autoimmune features that can also include debilitating pain, chronic anxiety, and muscle spasms so violent that they can dislocate joints and even break bones. In the early stages of SPS, spasms and stiffness may be subtle and fluctuate on a daily basis. There can be periods when symptoms seem stable, while other times they can be more noticeable and rapid. At times, the muscle spasms may be brief, lasting minutes. However, they can also last for hours or days. Other key warning signs include changes in posture, increased stress and anxiety, and trouble breathing. If you or someone you know is experiencing any of the above symptoms, contact your doctor or a medical professional as soon as possible. And who is at risk of stiff person syndrome? SPS is extremely rare and affects twice as many women as men. Symptoms can occur at any age, but usually develop between the ages of 30 and 60. The condition is associated with other autoimmune diseases, such as vitiligo, diabetes, pernicious anemia, and thyroiditis. As a whole, health professionals are unsure exactly what causes SPS, but some research indicates that it's the result of a faulty autoimmune response in the spinal cord and brain. And how is stiff person syndrome treated? Currently, there is no cure for SPS. Treatment focuses on pain relief and symptom management associated with muscle spasms, such as physiotherapy, a stretching and strengthening program, and massage therapy. In some patients, immunotherapy and other medications may help to reduce stiffness, pain, and specific autoimmune abnormalities. That said, most people with SPS have at least some degree of disability. If depression and anxiety is present, mental health therapy is encouraged, along with visiting a pain and chronic illness center for regular checkups. Can I prevent stiff person syndrome? As scientists do not know what causes SPS, there is no surefire way to prevent the condition. However, it's recommended that you do what you can to look after your mental and physical health through stress management, exercising regularly, getting adequate sleep, and eating a healthy diet. Wow, that is some interesting stuff indeed. That's it for the day. We're going to go ahead and wrap the show up. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot us an email. We're at hypoalmapodcast at gmail.com. We will drop that into the show notes as well as all of the articles that we have used on the show today. We would ask that you also please rate, review, and subscribe. It is essential to us in our continuation of this podcast, helping us to provide more shows like the ones our listeners like. We occasionally as well post pictures on Instagram. We're at podcast.addict. And please join us again next week when we talk about more weird, wacky, and wild medical news. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay healthy, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye.